Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to United Through Time and part two of episode four. This is the story of the man who won Manchester United's first major trophies, the first title, the first FA Cup and the first charity shield. This is the story of the man who pushed for the move to Old Trafford. This is the man who made United's first great football team. This man is Ernest Magnell and you're listening to United Through Time. Going in chronological order, United Through Time focuses on the most important individuals at Manchester United since the club was founded as Newton Heath in 1878. In part one of this episode, we considered Ernest Magnell's life and contribution to the club up until the end of April 1908. It was at that point that the Bolton-born club secretary lifted the Division 1 title with United for the first time. They'd beaten their rivals by nine points despite the miserable end of the season. With the money of John Henry Davies behind them, Magnell organised a celebratory tour of Europe for him and his players, and this is where part two begins. Elsewhere in part two, we discuss Manchester United's second league title in 1911, but before that, United moved in and built Old Trafford, the grandest football stadium in the country. They won the FA Cup, and in 1912, after all of that, Ernest Magnell stopped, considered, and walked over to Manchester City. 60 years before first becoming champions of Europe, 91 years before a second triumph and exactly 100 years, a century before a third big-eared trophy, Manchester United invaded the continent. On their way out, United were chased out of Budapest as a police escort poorly protected them from the hail of stones falling down upon their heads. They'd just beaten local side Ferenc Varos 6-0 and with each goal, relations between the Hungarian team, United, the referee and the 11,000-man crowd were worsening. Budapest was the fourth or fifth stop in this European tour for United. Magnol was likely the motivating factor behind it. The tour tied into the culture that owner John Henry Davies had helped to create already, the idea of making Manchester United the pride of Manchester and a symbol of the city on a global level. There had been tours by the Corinthians, which is an amateur team, to South America and places like that. But for a major league club to, to do a tour to the continent is, is pretty amazing. 
traveling to the continent it's, it's not like today where you go, not like normal times where you can just get on a plane and, and you can land there you know just planning that they'd have to travel down to dover they'd have to then get the boat then they'd have to travel on and on and on like busby and ferguson at united then chapman and wenger at arsenal and cruyff at barcelona magnol was ambitious and didn't just manage the selection of the team or even the purchasing of the players but pushed his club on to do more that applied to the European tour, but also to the move to Old Trafford, which we'll discuss later. And certainly Magnol would be the one who was responsible, absolutely, because he was the secretary manager. You know, he's a, he had to be responsible for that. Um, there'd been nobody else. You know, it, clubs didn't have loads and loads of staff who would organise these things. It would be down to, it would be down to the, the secretary manager. You know, occasionally we might have a, a, an office boy or an assistant, but, but that would be it. Before stones were thrown in Budapest, United had won seven games of their tour, all of those which we can recall, though it's likely some more friendlies were organised off the cuff. The trip proved useful for a number of reasons. It grew the name of Manchester United, of course, but it also proved to be a bonus for the players. With wages capped and bonuses limited, United found a loophole by giving their players a holiday worth about £60, a few thousand in today's money, and bear in mind that the maximum wage at the time was £4 a week, and on top of that, lavish hospitality was included. Charlie Roberts later explained this in the Manchester Sunday Post a couple of years on. The club were not allowed at the time to give us a bonus, but to show their appreciation, the directors arranged a continental tour for us to Austria and Hungary. They did, they did tend to treat this tour and, and some of the other tours as a bit of a reward for the players, more of a holiday in some ways. Um, but that, doesn't, that shouldn't downplay the significance of making that journey and making that, that trip. It was certainly not to make money. When United were in Prague, they played two games and gate receipts were £700, but United only got £100 of that. JJ Bentley described it as missionary business. They started off with a tourist trip to Paris, a city where the Eiffel Tower was still viewed with some suspicion and derision after its erection in 1889. United travelled there to Paris on May the 2nd and then headed to Zurich. Magnol was offered sufficient inducement to arrange a match, definitely in Zurich and potentially in Paris as well, and many were arranged before, but some indeed were off-the-cuff invitations to play a, a random local side. So United faced a Zurich 11 and won 4-2. There is general disagreement about when and which games were played between United historians as well as those who have studied the past of clubs such as Slavia Prague and others, but we do know for most of the time who United played and what the scores were, if not the exact date on which they were played. After the win against Zurich 11, United had arrived in Prague by May the 9th. This, in fact, and not Budapest as previously thought, was where the first trouble seemed to occur. United beat SC Slavia 2-0 in front of 5,000 people. Picken and Bannister scored the goals. The next day, they won by the same scoreline and with the same scorers, but this time in front of 10,000 fans. Slavia's fans rioted and United's players and staff were defended by mounted police with drawn swords against an ugly rush. Wild and apparently uncivilised mob did all they possibly could to maim us, a howling mob who made no secret of carrying revolvers and daggers. Needless to say, the Reds left in a hurry. United had been scheduled to play against Bohemians, but it never happened because of the Slavia riots. Vienna was up next. So they played on Friday and Saturday in Vienna, first against an 11 from the city, consisting of players from three Vienna-based sides. They won that game 4-0, Pickens scoring again, but Turnbull grabbing two, and George Wall the other. 
The next day, it was against Wiener Athletic Club, and a 5-0 win was comfortable for Magnol. Duckworth and Wall both scored twice. Turnbull got one. Vienna at the time was the centre of arts in Europe, the cultural centre of the continent. It was also where both Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin were in that exact summer, but it seems unlikely they went to watch United play. Over to Budapest then. United left the daggers and revolvers of Prague behind, had some success in the beautiful city of Vienna and could now enjoy Budapest. There were three matches. The first was against a Hungarian Select eleven, made up of players from the three best teams in the country. United won 6-2. Then two wins against Ferenc Varos left the locals furious. The main problem was the understanding of the rules. The English and the Europeans from each country had very much different understandings and the poor referees had to balance the two, leading to arguments, scuffles, fights and eventually a police escort under a hail of stones. In one match, Erdis Magnol refereed to try and help out. An official ran onto the field at half-time to present Magnol with a, a silver cigarette case. Billy Meredith found it pretty funny. The Welshman appears to have had a great time writing about his memories a few years later. In one match we had an excited referee who ruled the game from the touchline. He never came inside the field of play at all, but dashed madly up and down the line. Some of us were laughing so hard that we could not play. The players we met there were, on the whole, a cheery sporting set, and they did their best to make us at home and to help us enjoy ourselves. In the game at Zurich, I actually had two players who never left me from start to finish. They would have followed me through the town. I had a great time with them. If you tell the players you are speaking to that you like his necktie, he will at once pull it off and hand it to you with a smile and a bow. How different the Britisher. Meredith also explained the differences between the English teams and the Europeans. Bad refereeing is the sole reason that the game out there is rough, far too rough, to allow for correct football. I believe it is a fact that the Slavia team at Prague and the Bohemian team of the same old city have not met for years. Do you know why? They dare not. This is a fact. So bitter is the racial feeling that there would assuredly be serious trouble and these two rivals met. They got stoned by a crowd in Hungary. It wasn't necessarily friendly to all the time mm. you know and and can you imagine that you travel you've traveled over thinking you know we're league champions we're the, the this, this team that that is the best in england and probably as as english teams often do think they're the best in the world at that time you know and then you suddenly playing a match in hungary and you're getting stoned because the opposition don't <laughs> like you the fans are getting upset and stuff united headed home with plenty of memories jj bentley was left behind with gout and jimmy trunky turnbull stayed behind to look after him when bentley got back he presented jimmy turnbull with a handsome gold watch inscribed Greatly Recollections, Vienna, 1908, to J. Turnbull from J.J. Bentley. In Budapest, it was said that a gentleman of Budapest was very anxious to possess a memento of Meredith, and he approached him to buy the famous player's boots. A bargain was struck, and Meredith, shall I say reluctantly, sold his boots for £2.15. shillings. It was in that game against Ferenc Varos where Meredith had come up against another of the great players of the era. It was the only time they shared a pitch together, Billy Meredith and Imre Scholzer. They made 116 international appearances between them in careers that totaled 48 years. Nobody really knew what overseas teams were like. So all of that is a completely new and novel experience. So, so you know, it could easily have been that you took take your team and then get absolutely humiliated. <laughs> Ernest Magnum enjoyed the trip. He claims United played in more countries than most other people have stated. Here's his comments. 
All they do is kick, push and hack. It is a rare thing that you find an official who knows the rules, at any rate, as we understand them. We were stoned in Budapest and with the Slavia club. We shall never include them in another tour if we have one. On the whole, unqualified success. The players have enjoyed themselves. We visited Innsbruck too and have played in France, Germany, Austria, Belgium and Switzerland and have been just a month away. Based on Magnus' comments, United must have played a friendly while in Paris and must have gone north to Belgium and through Germany before heading to Prague, Budapest and Vienna. Either way, United might have been pelted with rocks, but they had broken down barriers and an English team had toured Europe. On the other hand, United wouldn't return to Budapest for 86 years. As champions and having only got stronger thanks to the mid-season signing of Harold House, United would have been seen as favourites for the title again. First up, though, was the Charity Shield. The first attempt at the Charity Shield had been back in April, just four days before United went to Paris. But a 1-1 draw at Stamford Bridge forced a replay, Meredith scoring the only goal against Queen's Park Rangers. The replay, because of United's European tour and then the off-season, couldn't happen until 29th of August. Perhaps a more familiar time for what is now the season's curtain raiser. The Charity Shield's history is a, a hodgepodge of different ideas, times and concepts. It first started as a match between professionals and amateurs in 1898. Ten years later, it changed after amateur clubs fell out with the Football Association and instead it was to have the Football League First Division champions, Manchester United, play the Southern League champions, not the FA Cup winners. So United played QPR, the Southern League winners. It's the only Charity Shield or Community Shield match to ever go to a replay. The second game was also played at Stamford Bridge in London and this time in August United triumphed 4-0 comfortably. It wouldn't be until 1921 that the league winners would play the FA Cup winners for the first time. Anyhow, it was another trophy for Magnus' team. Jimmy Turnbull scored a hat-trick and George Wall scored the other. In the space of a few months, United had won the league, gone to Europe and won a shield. It wasn't bad. But things weren't completely rosy at Clayton and it was the fault of the Bank Street ground. Newspapers commented that United must have another great season in front of them. But the reality was that Ernest Magnum was trying to convince his star players to stay at the club by putting a fan in the dressing room to keep out the toxic fumes of the nearby chemical works. So unrest in the camp. I mean, how were the champions of England expected to play good football on the stinking Bank Street bog? The players did stay and United won their first five games, scoring 16 goals. It was even better than last season. They were starting like champions. But again, not everything was right. The slickness of United's passing couldn't be seen and injuries were causing problems. The turning point was a match against Aston Villa. Turnbull forgot his boots at home, one of the horses attached to the carriage carrying United fell and the travelling players passed a funeral on the way to Birmingham. Captain Charlie Roberts remarked, that's done it. United lost 3-1 on October 17th and for the first time in 13 months they fell off the top of the table. Then they drew to Forest at home before being hit for six against Sunderland at Roker Park. Chelsea came to Bank Street and won 1-0 and now United hadn't won in four games and had conceded 12 goals in those games. They did pull things back somewhat with wins against Blackburn, Bradford, Sheffield Wednesday and by Christmas they were still third and only five points off the top. But within a month they'd be 13 points adrift. That league position mattered not too much because United would have also progressed in the FA Cup. 
the FA Cup was bigger than the league in, 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 in English football. Generally known as the English Cup back then, United had a terrible record. They'd only ever reached the quarter-final. Magnus' plan to win it was to keep clean sheets with the Duck Rebel backline and for Harold House, the signing from a year earlier, to grab a goal at some point. It seemed to work well. In the league, United continued to suffer from mixed fortunes throughout. There was a 3-1 loss to Liverpool, 3-0 to Blackburn, 2-0 to Villa, 2-0 to Sheffield Wednesday, one goal deficit to Bristol City, 2 to Nottingham Forest, 3-2 loss to Leicester, 4-1 to Woolwich Arsenal, 1-0 to Bradford City. And these miserable results, endless as they were, only occasionally interrupted by a draw or a league victory, left United in 13th come the end of the season. But as we've said, it mattered little, because Magnol's tactics first came off in the cup in a 1-0 win against Brighton. United defended well, and House scored despite having trained for the first time since a leg injury, only the day before the game. The newspapers had been sure he wouldn't play, but so he did, and 8,000 or so watched at Bank Street in the FA Cup first round. Billy Meredith was one of three internationals to be sent off in that afternoon's cup action across the country. The Dundee Telegraph insisted it was surely unique. They did, however, defend Billy Meredith. It is but fair to state that the clever right-winger had undergone great provocation prior to the incident. Thus, Meredith was suspended for the next round against Everton. The Lancashire papers mourned the fact that at least one of the county sides were guaranteed to go out, and it was Everton who would suffer. House again scored the only goal and was paying back his heavy transfer fee for the first time since he joined the club. The Liverpool Echo were disheartened. Clayton is not by any means an ideal place to say farewell to the English Cup competition. There's nothing romantic about it, and I should fancy that Everton would rather have bade goodbye to the Cup as the shadows fell from the trees that overlooked the Crystal Palace arena. At Manchester on Saturday, I found that the locals were inclined to be apologetic over United's enclosure, and remarks such as, wait till we go to our new ground though, were frequently heard. Old Trafford was certainly in people's thoughts, but United were through in the Cup thanks to House again, and they played Blackburn Rovers a fortnight later. This time, the Reds found some verve and excitement within themselves. Taking advantage of their familiarity with the poor Bank Street conditions, United raced to a 6-1 victory against Blackburn, where both Sandy and Jimmy Turnbull scored hat-tricks. Interestingly, they weren't described as hat-tricks. Later on in the season, the Athletic News would recall the game. Both James and Alec Turnbull each took the liberty of scoring three goals without accomplishing the hat-trick presumably indicating another means of achieving it, most likely through three consecutive goals in the game. This is still the case in Germany. A hat-trick is only a hat-trick if you score three goals in a row in the game without anyone else scoring between. The United owes its victory largely to the superior character of its shooting, the papers said. There was praise for the Turnbulls and for goalkeeper Harry Modger as well, but House and Livingston were said to have had an off day despite their team winning by five goals. 38,500 fans watched and United took in a grand and a half in receipts. Snow greeted United's quarter-final tie against Burnley, yet another fixture against the local Lancashire side. The papers weren't pleased. First United had knocked out Everton, then Blackburn and now the county's only two remaining football clubs faced off as well. When the gates opened at 12.25 for the quarter-final, snow was already falling, descending from the Pennines. With 18 minutes left, United were losing by one goal, but by this point the referee deemed the conditions unplayable. The story goes that the referee was in fact shivering so much from the cold that he couldn't blow his whistle to end the match, so instead had to ask United captain Charlie Roberts to do so instead. Roberts reached into the referee's pocket, took the whistle out and blew for time and the suspension of the match, much to the horror of the paying supporters. 
The referee was Herbert Bamlet, and he became manager of Manchester United 18 years later. The sportsman wrote that fans were frustrated, but that the referee was completely justified in his decision. In Burnley, though, there was no shortage of criticism for the decision. Some claimed that it had in fact come after Charlie Roberts had asked the referee to stop the game. United had been the lesser side in the first half and went down to a good Burnley goal. In the second, Magnus team had peppered the goal at Turf Moor, but couldn't find a way into the net as the woeful conditions worsened. The tie was replayed a few days later on the Wednesday afternoon. This time, United managed a 3-2 win, thanks to a double from Jimmy Turnbull. The frustrated Burnley fans mocked the previous events by singing Stop the game, it's snowing, to some sort of local tune. Roberts said, We were greeted with such a round of booing and hissing as I have never heard before or after. But United were into the semi-final after Magnell had beaten his old team. Next up was Newcastle, the club aiming to complete the first double of the 20th century. 40,118 fans crammed in at Bramall Lane to watch the two best teams of the era who had competed for the title the year before. A mass exodus from Manchester took place heading to Sheffield from the London Road, Manchester Central and Manchester Victoria train stations. Even so, that didn't stop a crowd of 4,000 turning up at the reserves game at Clayton on the same day. United were 13 points behind Newcastle in the league at this stage. It was March 27, 1909 and once again, for the third time in the tournament, Harold House scored the only goal of the game and United's backline held firm. Whilst at first the weather became cloudy, the sun burst through again and the proceedings commenced under the most delightful surroundings. Roberts hit the crossbar with a header early on. Wall and Jimmy Turnbull came close with the rain falling heavily in Sheffield. United reverted to typical Magnal type in the second half after the early threat. They sat back and eventually found their way through, House latching onto a cross from George Wall and driving a shot past the goalkeeper Lawrence. With 15 minutes left, Captain Charlie Roberts called his teammates back into defence. Even the Welsh wizard Meredith could be seen booting the ball out of play until the referee brought matters to a close. Newcastle's players waited in the rain after the game to applaud United and gave the match ball to Charlie Roberts and his teammates. It was a fine sporting crowd and one which was about as impartial as could be expected, said the Manchester Courier. Manchester United were not entirely ship-shape and the best that can be said of them is that they are worthy finalists, was the verdict in the local Sheffield Telegraph. The Courier, meanwhile, admitted that in football it is always dangerous to prophesy, but claimed that the men of the United have now negotiated their stiffest fence and their task in the final next month looks comparatively easy. In a two-page spread report on the game, the Courier further insisted that United had a look of incisiveness about them and were more combined than Newcastle. Every minute, almost, Manchester United were accentuating their early dominance. Elsewhere, Bristol City beat Derby County in the other semi-final and United's date was set. 24th of April, 1909, a trip to the Crystal Palace ground and a chance to win the FA Cup for the first time in the club's history. More than a week before the Cup final was to take place, the United team headed down to London in preparation. They spent their time at the Royal Forest Hotel in Chingford, northeast London. They rested relaxed and played golf. On Saturday, exactly one week before the final, they had to put their restful proceedings on hold as they travelled to play Leicester in the league. A 3-2 defeat away from home at Filbert Street was another poor result in a woeful run of form. Although the golf may have been nice, in terms of form United were doing atrociously. 
After the semi-final victory against Newcastle, Magnell's team lost three consecutive games, drew the next two before a rare win against Notts County, and then the Leicester loss. One of United's defeats, and one of the draws too, was against their cup final opponents, Bristol City. To make matters worse, Charlie Roberts, United's captain Marvel, had to stay up north after the Leicester match to see his daughter, who was suffering from bronchitis. But they had other omens on their side. Magnall had chosen the Royal Forest Hotel for specific reasons. The Tottenham team had stayed there a couple of years before when they'd lifted the cup, and Everton had trained there too. They too finished the season with the silver trophy in their possession. Magnall was confident. Surely what is good enough for them to win ought to serve Manchester United well, Magnall told the Manchester Evening News' London correspondent. Billy Meredith was confident too. It was he, not Magnall or Roberts, who was the real star attraction of the final. Yes, we ought to win on Saturday at the Palace. Bristol, they tell me, were lucky to beat Derby. Manchester will win. The newspapers backed him and Magnall up, being quick to insist that United's league position was merely a result of their attentions being turned towards the FA Cup. Manchester have not lost a goal in the competition to any club except Burnley and Blackburn Rovers and the dismissal of Everton, Newcastle and Blackburn is a warranty of excellence. Roberts, who did make it back to Chingford without any ordeals, was a little more guarded. Mind you, he said, while bouncing a tennis ball up and down at the Chingford grounds. It'll be hard luck for us if Sandy Turnbull cannot play. But Pickin is a good lad, and as we're all fit and as happy as we can be with the hotel and the golf, I fancy we will do it. Turnbull was out with a leg injury, the Athletic News reminding its readers before the final that the muscles at the back of his thigh gave way in the semi-final. Almost everyone in the know was certain that Sandy wouldn't make it. This was of particular concern for some who remembered that Turnbull had had his medal stolen from the 1904 final when he played for City alongside Meredith. It was, after all, the biggest day in the football calendar by far and the biggest achievement of them all, far above the league for most supporters and players. There is no football sight like this cup final, proclaimed the Yorkshire Evening Post. The trophy, though, was described as that insignificant bauble known as the English Cup, for there was much sarcasm directed towards the cup itself. It wasn't enormous, it wasn't particularly valuable. People expected gold and they saw silver. People expected grander and they saw a small cup. It would be replaced only two years later and its shape and size hasn't changed much since then. Famous names were being advertised in the papers as having committed to watching the final. Cricketer W.G. Grace was one of those MPs set to visit the slopes of Sydenham, included C.G. Hophouse, among others. Advertising, meanwhile, was beginning to revolve around football. Oxo ran a competition back in Manchester where customers could send in vouchers and be entered into a draw for the cup final travel and tickets. Commercial enterprise takes forms nowadays never dreamed of a few years back. This competition caused a great deal of interest in Lancashire and indeed throughout the north of England. Oxo had sponsored the London Olympics the year before in 1908 and may well be the first ever sponsor for those games. But in the football competition, thousands of coupons were received from thousands of competitors. The 40 passengers who won the prize were said to be supremely contented after watching United win. That wasn't it though, Andrews' liver salt was advertised too with a quote from United trainer Fred Bacon speaking about how it imparted just what was most needed when United won their continental trip the year before. Uh, Ernest Mangnall testified at the cup when we were down to uh, Oxor beef stock cubes while trainer Fred Bacon swore that it was down to Andrews' liver salts. Wincarnis, a tonic wine, was in the paper alongside Manchester United's name who apparently used it to achieve the following gives the strength that wins the game. Manchester United have found it very useful in their training for the final tie. All this is not just to say that really, 
football hasn't changed as much as some claim. It's also to show the growth of Manchester United and Bristol too. The teams had been promoted from the second division in the same season only three campaigns earlier. Now they faced off in the undoubted biggest game of the season. A win for Ernest Magnell and it would be his fourth or perhaps fifth major feat. Promotion, a title, a European tour and a cup. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. United's fan base had plenty to complain about in relation to the terrible Clayton ground and complain they did. That was soon to change, of course. But in Ernest Magnell, they had a great club secretary and those fans celebrated their FA Cup final appearance in appropriate fashion. It was thought that 20,000 or so would head down from Manchester and other parts of Lancashire to London. Jonathan Wilson, in his book, claims that that number could be as high as 60,000, though. A huge number of special excursion trains were put on, at least 100 in number and maybe as many as 150. Paddington welcomed 32 of these trains on the day, Houston 30, St Pancras 30, Kings Cross 26, Marlebin 14 and at least 20 more were shared and scattered around the smaller stations of the capital. One of those offering train services to London for the weekend was the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company, the workers of which had founded the Newton Heath LYR Football Club back in 1878. Three decades later, the two had split, but now the LYR provided the transport for a whole set of fans, perhaps not even born when the heathens first started and Manchester United were now on their way to Cup Glory. They weren't the only train service, but the company organising all of these was Thomas Cook and Son. Just like in the 2010s for United fans, Thomas Cook organised trips for Reds. Parties varying in number from 12 persons to 300 and from practically every industrial town in Lancashire in the north were booked with the company, already a major name by then. The staff at our Manchester office is working extra hours arranging for the excursions. For six shillings a head, T. Cook and Son offered United fans the chance to see a bit of London before the game with a hot meat breakfast, a three-hour drive round town and then a hot dinner before being shipped off to the Crystal Palace ground. No stops at any pubs though. 
Meanwhile, at the Crystal Palace itself, a crowd of 70 to 100,000 people was expected. They needed some food. According to the Yorkshire Evening Post, 60,000 slices of bread and butter were stocked up. 20,000 rolls, 10,000 loaves, 14,000 sandwiches, 3,500 pork pies, 75 rumps of beef for steaks, 100 loins of mutton for chops, 50,000 pieces of cake, 100 bowls of beer, 2,000 bottles of whiskey and spirits, 1,200 pounds of tea and coffee, 1,000 gallons of milk, 25 ribs of beef and 200 foals. United fans and players would be well fed. Before that though, the trains had to come in. The first one did so at five past midnight on the day of the game. They came in regularly from that point until midday. And by this point, Londoners were used to the sudden rush of Northerners once a year in their city. When Blackburn Olympics fans had first come in the 1880s, there'd be a, a sense of bewilderment. But now it was a matter of celebration, or at least it drew a giggle from the local Londoners. The differences between the men of Manchester and those of London may not have been so big on an everyday scale, but journalists certainly thought the North and the South to be two worlds apart. The London Evening Standard wrote that The North Countryman is abroad. His mission to fight for took cup, and as he has always done at this time of year, he has succeeded in giving his arrival this distinctiveness all of its own. He will dominate London tonight. The cat flaunting the colours of his own particular club, he has already contrived to let it be known that he is out and about. One wrote in bemusement at the jars of strong ale and inch-thick sandwiches. We better leave it to the Manchester Courier to really explain. Lancastrians in their thousands invaded London on Saturday. They wrote, Thousands boarded trains at Victoria, Central and London Road. Most went overnight, setting off on the Friday evening. On arrival in London, in the small hours of the morning, many of them were drenched to the skin by a heavy storm which broke over the city at about five o'clock. Some shopkeepers on the Euston Road offered a wash and brush up for 2D. Some restaurants opened at 5am to give the soaked travellers somewhere to rest up for a few hours. Lancastrian visitors predominated. They were a happy, cheerful crowd animated by but one object. They had come to see United win the Coupe and they did not mind who knew it. With smiling faces, they were quite prepared to tell all and sundry exactly how it was going to be done, and they talked loudly of one William Meredith on whom they pinned their faith. It was an invasion, perhaps the first real invasion of the Red Army. There was no part of London in which they were not to be seen during the morning, in Ludgate Hill, Fleet Street, The Strand, Holborn, Piccadilly and Oxford Street. United fans were as confused by London as Londoners and Cockneys were by them. The men's London correspondent said United fans were startled by the scenes on show at Covent Garden Market, watching the noisy scenes attendant upon the selling of fruit and flowers with interest and not a little amazement. Interestingly, even at this point in April 1909, a few Cockney Reds had sprouted up. And even at this point, it seemed to be a long-held love for United. Most of the Southerners present were anxious to see the Bristol team win. This is the Manchester Courier we're reading from now. But Londoners, as a general rule, were to be found supporting United, for they have always had a special fondness for the Manchester team. It's likely the presence of Meredith was partly responsible for that. He was the star, described in the evening standard as the finest forward, who has a rare turn of speed, and who has reduced his football to a fine art. His footwork is bewildering. While some drank ale and others toured St Paul's, red and white umbrellas could be seen dotted around London landmarks. Bristol's fans brought plenty of blue and white too and may have even outnumbered United's support. It depends from where you read. But while this went on, United's players remained relaxed. They stayed at the same Chingford Hotel until the morning of the game when they headed to the Great Eastern Hotel by Liverpool Street Station, 
they enjoyed luncheon before heading down to Sydenham, across London in taxicabs. By the time they reached there, it's likely it was already bursting with spectators. Two hours before kickoff, a good several thousand had already picked a spot on the sloping side of the Sydenham ground at the Crystal Palace. Alternating glimpses of sunshine and shadow prevailed over the once threatened rainfall. All roads led to the Crystal Palace and most headed down in taxicabs. Flowers decked every side of the pitch, red and white for Manchester United, blue and white for Bristol City. At about one o'clock, the scene suggested a vast garden party rather than a great struggle for a football trophy. Such was the quantity of food and buffets on show. After rain in the morning, the turf was firm and springy and the grass a nice light green. As the minutes sped by, the streams of humanity became notably denser. They came down from the slopes to be swallowed up by the clustering lines overlooking the football arena. The railings stood out vividly amidst the darkening mass of a spreading congregation which began to stretch all over. It was cup final day after all and the mood was a reportedly jovial one. One reporter said, It was a tonic of the most exhilarating kind to be within sight and sound of so much enthusiasm, such an evident enjoyment of living. The players came out a couple of minutes before kickoff. Bristol first, wearing rich blue shirts and white shorts, led by Captain Wedlock, the England centre-half who had displaced Charlie Roberts from the national team. Though normally in red, the kick clash meant both teams had been asked to wear something different. They were given a large cheer. But then United followed quickly after, led by Roberts. They made a very dissimilar pair. Wedlock's little form in blue being overshadowed by the tall, athletic personality of the Manchester United skipper Roberts, whose white garments added to his eye-filling appearance. Roberts' shirt from that game is now the property of the PFA. George Stacey's is in the National Football Museum. It was predominantly white, but bedecked with a scarlet chevron, with bands of the same colour at the wrist, and a red rose, the rose of Lancashire, that emblem of a great sporting county, in the position of the heart. The kits had been a gift from comedian, actor and performer George Roby, a reasonably talented footballer himself, but who was a keen fan of United. Later that day, United's players would celebrate on stage with Roby at the Alhambra Theatre in the West End. After a quick passing of the ball around on the pitch, United won the coin toss. Roberts chose to play with wind and sun in their backs, and the cup final of 1909 was underway. The semi-breeze of the national anthem and Royal Britannia had only just faded away in the wind when... Punctuated by the half-involuntary roar of a kick-off in a football crowd, Bristol started proceedings. George Wall had a good shot saved and United controlled things from early on. After 21 minutes, they led. Harold House delivered a rasping shot that crashed off the crossbar and Sandy Turnbull seized on the opportunity to crash the ball past Bristol goalkeeper Clay. Oh yeah, Sandy Turnbull was playing. He overcame his leg injury. Well, not quite, but in the much-cited words of captain Charlie Roberts, he might get a goal. And if he does, we can afford to carry a passenger. Magnaw had been convinced by Roberts' pre-match pleas and started Turnbull. He and Roberts were great friends and though Turnbull may have been a, a bit of a Scottish joker, he had a great respect for Captain Charlie. Sandy often fancied a, a half-time beer, a little odd perhaps, but every time he would ask for the permission of Charlie Roberts. Every time. Now he had a cup final goal after seven consecutive games out with injury. by the mighty shout in their delight the Lancashire fold threw their hats in the air waved their red and white colours aloft embraced one another back home there were plenty of Mancunians who couldn't make it down to London but had a keen interest 
fact, it's doubtful if in recent years any town has been more excited about the result of a cup final, said one paper. A large crowd gathered round the offices of newspapers ready to receive news of goals, scores and the result. Tremendous cheering marked the announcement that United had obtained the lead. By half-time, most concurred that United's lead was indeed deserved, and the second half was a disappointment to journalists and fans alike. The London Daily News insisted that only the most rabid partisans of Manchester United would suggest it was a good game, and that it was sadly disappointing to witness such a game. This was one of the very worst specimens. But in the second half, Roberts showed his quality. The captain and centre-half was, as ever, at the centre of everything. Charlie Roberts was, although a centre-half, um, he would actually have played like Brian Robson because centre-halves were creative players um, and, and Charlie Roberts was particularly one of those. I mean, the centre-half, I think, in, at, at that time, was possibly the main playmaker, the, the pivot of the team, you know? And... Um, and Charlie Roberts was a, a great, great player and, and captain and leader of the team. Vince Hayes briefly went off with injury and Roberts reorganised the team on the field. That was his role. Magnol, he could basically let Charlie Roberts, who was a great student of the game, uh, run, run things on the park. And United held out. Meredith went on a couple of mazy runs down the wing and provided a little late entertainment. But in truth, United coasted a bit. It was likened to the expert swordsmanship of a great fencer toying with mediocrity. But really it appears to have just been a contentment with a one-goal win. It was a cup final. In Lancashire, news of the final whistle via telegraph was greeted with Scenes of wonderful enthusiasm. An enterprising newspaper dispatch reports a class displaying the scores into the suburbs. And in the central streets, brass bands playing more or less appropriate airs, while bands of youths paraded up and down singing the latest musical songs. It was a win for Lancashire, not just United, with the red rose of the county on Roberts' white shirt as he was handed the trophy by Lord Charles Beresford, a famous and very popular naval captain. When Beresford gave Roberts' medal, one United player remarked to him, I hope you will have as much success with the Navy, my lord, drawing great laughs from those around him. United's fans celebrated throughout London invading Theatreland. Very quickly, managers of bars, hotels and restaurants could post up house full on the side of their buildings. The United team, meanwhile, first headed to the Trocadero restaurant where they drank for hours until about quarter to nine. Sandy Turnbull reminded Charlie Roberts that the team had promised George Roby, the donator of their kits, that they'd be at his show for 9pm. They rushed back to the Alhambra. JJ Bentley took one glance at the pair and their teammates and stopped them for a second. I think I better come along or I can see the cup being lost in London. When Roberts arrived at the Alhambra, he realised he didn't quite have the full United team he had promised George Roby. I brought a dozen of my friends from Manchester. One had a bald head. One has a silver plate in his side. I stood on one end of the stage, Sandy at the other, while George Livingston, Jimmy Turnbull, Mr Bentley and Harry Stafford stood at the back. And with my friends mixed in, it was the greatest cup team you ever saw. The scream went up and I thought I should have fainted as the crowd began to cheer. I was winking at Roby to get the screen down and then the laugh that I had been bursting to let out came forth in its full strength. The team I had collected to represent the cup winners included a poultry dealer, a bookmaker, a builder and a greengrocer among them. It's said that 300,000 people welcomed United back to Manchester with the cup.
That's it for part two of this episode. I hope you've enjoyed this section of episode four, Ernest Magnal. Part three will be out next Sunday, April 26th. This is after one of only three Manchester United managers to win the top flight. Thanks to my wonderful guests, Gary James, Paddy Barkley and Ian Gardiner. And if you've enjoyed the show, please share it with your mates. I hope you'll rejoin me for part three next Sunday on United Through Time. See you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.